You may be seated. Our scripture passage this evening is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Um, This is Jesus going to a party, turning water into wine. So I figure on the Lord's Day and celebrating the Lord's Supper, it would make sense to go to a passage dealing with this. Um, Jesus is in Cana of Galilee, and there's four movements in this passage. We're going to see this passage in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, play out in four movements. There is a crisis that Jesus faced. There is a command that Jesus gives. He receives a compliment, and then his disciples confirm his identity. There's a crisis. There's a command, a compliment, and confirmation. So open with me now to John chapter 2, as I read from God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Uh, Jesus is stumbling into a problem that he doesn't know he's getting roped into. Mary is helping to uh, put together a wedding. She's probably related to the couple somehow, and so Jesus and the disciples show up. And he encounters a crisis. There's no wine. Now, this, this isn't a life or death crisis. This isn't, you know, nobody's going to be changed for eternity or changed for the rest of their life because the wine ran out. But it's a small seat crisis. I mean, imagine going next week to a 4th of July party and there's no burgers or brats. What do you get? I mean, half the reason, maybe a quarter of the reason, half the reason, I'll let you figure out the ratio, but half the reason you're going to a 4th of July picnic is to be with other people and eat good food. I mean, that's part of the incentive. So this is, this is a big social faux pas because back in the ancient world, you didn't have sick leave and vacations. You basically had weddings and funerals, and that's when everything shut down in the town and you could spend time together and enjoy your time. And so this was a problem. A small sea crises. And Mary turns to Jesus even in the small sea crises. We so readily turn to Jesus for the big things, we can forget to turn to him for the little things. You know, he's just as eager to hear from us about the little things as he is about the big things. A couple months ago, my daughter had gotten this little fairy elf thing in a plastic container that, you know, lit up when you turned the bottom on. 
and uh, she couldn't find it. She wanted to show it to her friend. She had just gotten it. She wanted to take it on this play date and share it with her and, and experience the joy with her friend. And she, she came bursting into my room with tears running down her face. She was five years old. And she said, I can't, I can't find my fairy toy. I was like, oh, all right, harps. Well, let's, like, let's just pray about it and let's see. And so we bowed our heads and I said, Lord Jesus, uh, we can't find Harper's fairy doll. And uh, this isn't a big deal, but it is important to Harper right now. And would you just be kind and show us where this fairy doll is? Amen. So I said, all right, Harper, go put your sandals on. She ran off to put her sandals on. And then I was like, okay, Lord, please help, help in this teachable moment come through. And so I went upstairs to her room, took the covers off the bed, looked under the uh, Chester drawers, looked in the Chester drawers, looked on the bookshelf, looked everywhere on the third floor, couldn't find it. And, uh, and then one last thing was in the corner of her room, this little plush carrying container that she had for a stuffed unicorn. Have you ever seen people at the airport with like lap dogs or small kittens? It was kind of like that, except for a plush unicorn. And I was like, who knows? It could be in there. So I grabbed it and I opened it up and there was her little fairy doll. Friends, the Lord Jesus cares about the little sea crises in our life. Right? When you can't find your driver's license for the past two days and you're scrambling around looking at the prospect of taking off a half-day work to go to the DMV and get it straightened out, he cares. He's there for the big C and the little C, and he wants us to turn to him. But the other thing we see about this crisis is that we have to come to Jesus on his terms, not on our terms. Look again at verses 3 and 4. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, to vernacular English, Jesus just responding to Mary and saying, you know, woman, can potentially, you know, make, our, make us bristle a little, little bit. Like, what is Jesus doing? Is he some sort of misogynistic pig? Like, what is going on here? Why is he just saying woman? It's a good translation of gunai, which is the Greek, and He's saying something that, that sounds abrasive, but it's not. He's actually being incredibly respectful. He's, he's saying something like, my lady, or miss, or something to that effect. And what's actually shocking about that is this, Jesus is treating his own mother not like his mother. See, Mary is coming to Jesus on her terms via blood relation, but Jesus, ever since his baptism by John the Baptist, has had his sights set on the cross and atoning for sins. And that's what he's referring to when he says, my hour has not yet come. And so when Mary starts to come to him via blood relations, he respectfully holds out his hand and says, no, 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 no. You, my dear lady, must come to me on the basis of faith, like any one of my disciples. And if Jesus' own mother had to relate to him like a disciple by faith, how much more do we have to relate to Jesus by faith? Being born in a church, growing up in a Christian family, doesn't mean anything until you appropriate the blood of Christ for you, for yourself, via faith. You can't claim it on any other grounds. And that, friends, is a big C crisis that we all must face. Yes, Jesus cares about the little things, and we can go to him for the little things, but we have to go to him on his terms and not on our own. 
So after this crisis, Jesus issues a command in verses 6 to 8. Look at verses 6 to 8. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. John gives us here a little interesting detail because there is no detail in the Bible that is unimportant. Everything is there for a purpose and a reason. The first thing we see is, is that there's basically 120 to 180 gallons of water available that Jesus is turning into a wine. Now, that is way more than this wedding feast needs. Because as the master of the feast says at the, the end here of this passage, there's several days into it. They're basically at the tail end, right? But Jesus is being extravagantly generous and blessing. And he's showing the beauty and the joy and the overabundance and fullness of the new covenant. And that's one of the things that John wants us to see. But the other thing is that the old covenant was waiting for Jesus to come and fulfill it. Why, why do these stone jars for purification have to be filled? Why is, it, why is it that they have to be tended to? It's because they hadn't quite met their purpose. There was something that which the good and beautiful ordinances that God had given to the children of Israel and the old covenant was pointing to that needed to be present. And Jesus, in conducting this miracle, was saying, I am that guy. Everything that you have been waiting for, everything that the prophets had promised, that's me. And it's a good thing to consider, well, well, why wine? Of all the things that Jesus could have done, this is his opening act, like this is his, his first thing that he does in the Gospel of John. Why, why wine? Now, there are plenty of passages in the scriptures, like in Proverbs or other places, that warn us about the dangers of alcoholism. Um, and I guarantee you that probably every single one of us in this room knows somebody or has personally dealt with that struggle. And wine is used as a symbol of judgment in Jeremiah and Isaiah and other places. But even though the Bible does warn against the dangers of alcohol and use wine as a symbol of judgment, it's also used as a sign of God's grace and blessing and joy and mercy. Here are just a few snippets from the Old Testament. A couple of verses that would have been ringing in the disciples' ears as they've seen Jesus before this miracle. Joel chapter 3, verse 18 says this. He says, In that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Amos 9, 13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes with him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And the prophet Isaiah, likewise, in chapter 25, verse 6, he says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. 
See, Jesus is saying all of the good things that you were promised in the prophets, they were looking forward to in the day of God coming, that is beginning now. And why wine? Why is it that the Lord decided to use wine as the symbol of his blessing? Well, wine is something that transforms us from the inside out, right? Unlike water in the, st- in the stone jars for purification that was for external washing, wine is something that is internally digested and then changes you from the inside out, like the new wine of the Spirit. Um, one of the other reasons that the Lord uses wine as a symbol is because it's something sweet out of death. The very process of fermentation is biological decay. And just like Jesus was about to go and be lifted up in his glory and then enter into the tomb and rise again to new life, so fermentation brings out the sweetness of new wine. But most importantly, it must be experienced. The new wine that Jesus gives us in this Holy Spirit must be experienced. If you were to try to explain to somebody what vanilla was like, somebody who'd never seen it, tasted it, smelled it, you're trying to tell them they, they would not have a clue what it was like. Or if you're not a vanilla person, take chocolate. Try to explain what a chocolate bar is to somebody who has never tasted chocolate, never seen cocoa, never smelled it. You can't do it. It's something that must be experienced. And Jesus is driving us to that point, that the kingdom that he brings is one that changes us from the inside out through the experience of the Holy Spirit. And notice that it's also at the command of the word of Jesus that this change takes place, right? This is what happens in verses seven and eight. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the feast. So they took it. John, in the chapter before this, has introduced the themes of Genesis and Exodus, right? Creation and redemption in the Old Covenant are lingering in the background. And so this is evoking other really important themes. Jesus isn't just transforming water into wine. Jesus is saying, just like God spoke and created in the beginning, I'm here to recreate with new life. But unlike Moses which John introduced us to at the end of chapter one. Unlike Moses, whose first miracle was that of judgment and turned water into blood, Jesus's first miracle is that of gracious forgiveness and joy, turning water into wine. Jesus is here not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment on behalf of us who do not deserve that forgiveness. And friends, if we want this sort of recreative, transformative power in our lives, we need to avail ourselves to the same word that the servants did, that Mary did. Just like Mary said, look, do whatever he says. We need to meet with the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I'll do what you say. And not not just his commands, but also his, his warnings and his promises and his questions. We need to engage with it. It is a beautiful opportunity to be changed daily meeting with God in his word. Well, after he gives this command, he gets a compliment, a really nice compliment in verses nine to 10. This is what we read. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus was subverting the social custom because it makes great economic sense if you're hosting a lot of people to have the really nice stuff in the beginning and then later on in the week when people's palates have become less discerning, let's say, to bring out the less expensive stuff. But Jesus is saving the best for last. And friends, this is a picture of what Jesus does for us in our walk with him. This is a picture of the Christian life, is that the best is yet to come. Now, this is really hard for us to comprehend as modern Americans because we have an Olympic mindset, right? We have a, we have a NFL, you know, Major League Baseball, pick your sport. We have an athletic mindset, and the athletic mindset is this. 18 to 24, 25 is your physical and aesthetic peak. That's it. And everything else from there is downhill. And based on that standard, the majority of us are rolling downhill fast, right? That's, that's happened. The best day, you look the best on your wedding day, and after that, it's over. But that's not what happens in the kingdom, right? And Jesus is communicating that. In the kingdom, the in, though the outward man is wasting away, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Man, those of you guys that, that are young adults, teenagers, I, oh, I hated being a teenager. I feel so bad for you. Like, that's one period of life where I would never, ever go back to again, right? Because you're just like, you're trying to figure out who am I? What is my identity? You're struggling with all sorts of conflict with your parents. Your body's changing. Your social settings are changing. But, but if you walk with Jesus, you will actually, by the time you hit 20 and then 25 and 30, you will look back at your 14-year-old self, you will look back at your 18-year-old self and say, wow, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I am so much more loving. I have so much more joy and peace, certainly a great deal more peace than being a teenager. Patience, kindness, self-control that I never could have dreamed of. Thank you, Lord, for taking me this far. And likewise, those of us that are in our 30s and 40s, when we get to be in our 50s and 60s, we'll look back at this time and go, my goodness, what in the world was I thinking? I lacked so much love and so much peace and so much self-control and faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me to this point. And for those of you that are later on in life, 60s, 70s, 80s, if for somehow you could live to be 150, <laughs> no, nobody really wants that. But if you could, your 150-year-old self would look back at your 60, 70, 80-year-old self and say, oh, what a joke. Thank you, Lord, for taking me this far. Because, friends, in the kingdom of God, the best is yet to come. And that's just this side of the resurrection. That's just this side of the resurrection. That's not even looking into glory. And so Jesus encounters this crisis, he gives a command, receives this compliment, and then at the end of this segment, we get a confirmation. This is what we read in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This was the whole goal. The whole reason Jesus opened his ministry this way was so that people would trust him via faith. And it worked. It did the job. 
It did what it was supposed to do. The disciples, they knew their Genesis. They knew their Exodus. They knew their Joel and Amos and Isaiah. And they saw what Jesus was saying. See, the, the, the problem with this miracle and the miracles of John is that the miracles in John do what the parables do in the, in, the, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you read the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see Jesus is always telling stories, all right, sheep and goats and leaven and lamps and all this sorts of stuff. And he, he tells these parables in order to keep his enemies at bay so that he can proceed with the mission of proclaiming the gospel till he gets to the cross, till it's the right time, while at the same time giving enough information so that those who have ears can hear and they're brought in. And that is what the miracles do in the gospel of John. They have the same function as the parables. And Jesus' miracle does what it set out to do. They believe. They see that he is the one that all the prophet, prophets promised. He is the one bringing the joy of the kingdom. That that day that the prophets spoke of was beginning in the inauguration of his ministry here at Cana in Galilee. And so they would see when he would get to the cross that him being lifted up and crucified was actually his glory. And that they would follow him by faith. And he would take them from strength to strength and knowing that the best is yet to come. Friends, whether you have been walking with Jesus for decades or you're trying to figure out who he is for the first time, John is inviting us to give ourselves in faith to Christ in the same way that the disciples did. Let us do so. Father God, we thank you for this passage in the gospel which is a beautiful celebration of joy. It's a party. Uh, and we often forget that you smile, Lord, uh, that your heart is one of celebration and joy, that you willingly and gladly came to ransom and rescue sinners to bring us into your kingdom. We thank you for the distinct privilege now of entering into that reality through the sacrament, through seeing it, tasting it, smelling it, ingesting it. And we ask, Lord, that, that what the sacrament is supposed to sign and seal would be done through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.